0: We're going to continue now uh, with our final uh, discussion on uh, care of the patient with cancer. And uh, we're going to, with whatever time is left, we're going to do a quick segue into um, looking a little more closely at colorectal cancers. And um, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on these individual diseases. I mostly put these here just so you can just sort of as examples of... um, you know, we talked about breast cancer and some of the details that are involved with that. And here's Hodgkin's disease, which is one that you see a lot. Um, and the way it's diagnosed is they actually see this binucleated B lymphocyte here. That's the classic sign of of Hodgkin's disease. So if you're wondering, like when you hear the term Hodgkin's disease, just you know what is it? I put this up here just so you can you can see. Um, And you can see that the symptoms very often are what we're, you know, you've, things we've already talked about as, as symptoms of, of other cancers, uh, the enlarged lymph nodes, uh, hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, mediastinal mass. What's a mediastinal mass? Anybody know? Tumor in the chest, yeah. There's a mass in, under the under the sternum y- usually, so it's a, a mediastinal mass. Um, treatment uh, depends on the staging, and the staging depends on how extensive it is. You can see that in some stages they just they just use um, irradiation, and in later stages they also will use chemotherapy and. Uh, Remember I was telling you that they often use combinations of, of drugs and, and different timing. And a lot of the, the chemotherapy protocols, uh, this one actually has an abbreviation of MOP for the, just because of the drugs that are used. The, the chemotherapy protocols have certain days and even at sometimes to the hour of when treatments begin. And the protocols usually will begin on day zero and at day zero... Uh, is usually the initiation. A lot of times what will happen on day zero is the insertion of a central line catheter and getting the person ready for the chemotherapy and then, on, and then at a certain num- hour, first drug is given. And then it might say six hours later, another drug is given or 24 hours and there'll be days that are listed. And then on top of that, the, the, the cancer protocols will have cycles so there may be uh, just one or two or five cycles, and there may be days within those cycles that could be anywhere from a few days to a couple weeks. Uh, and so within each cycle there's days, and, then, and that's all mapped out in advance or at, at ahead of time. And then uh, as long as the patient's responding and not having major complications and going into remission, they will stick to that, to that protocol. Sometimes what some people don't understand, though, is in those protocols that you're actually part of a little bit of an experimentation. So what happens is, is that they might give everybody the same protocol, but they may vary a little bit how much of this drug and how much of that drug is being given in small amounts, or they may, they may alter the days uh, or the times. And then what they do in the long term is go back and look and say, was there better outcomes with people on protocol... A, or better outcomes with people on protocol B. So even though everybody's getting essentially the same treatment, there's actually slight uh, variations. And which, which protocol you actually get into is randomized. They're, so um, when we talk about evidence-based practice in medicine, oncology has been way ahead of a lot of other practices because they actually do uh, continuous testing of the protocols to see what works best. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that, in a, in a small way, you're part of a part of a little bit of an experiment in almost every case of your of your treatment. Uh, when you're diagnosed, too, another thing I don't know we t- I've talked about this, but your case will go up. A lot of institutions will have what they call a tumor board, and it's not just an individual oncologist deciding. Okay, here's what I'm going to do for you. They actually have a team of people that include nurses, uh, and oncologists everybody and, and decide what's the best treatment, what's the best protocol for this for this patient. Um, so again, it's, it's part of uh, improving evidence-based practice in oncology care. Uh, another example of a cancer, leukemia. We mentioned, we talked about the word leukemia, meaning white blood. Um, there's also, a, it can be classified either as an acute or chronic. Uh, interestingly, it's very different outcomes with kids and adults. For example, acute lymphocytic leukemia in kids, very curable. Almost every child, if they're young and healthy, will go into remission and stay in remission. But with an adult gets ALL, it's very often fatal. With the chronic cancer, with the chronic leukemias with kids, it's often fatal, it's often very hard to get them into remission. Adults can often live with it for the rest of their lives. They can, it can be managed. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I have no idea, um, but it just seems to be. I guess the way it develops is is different for adults versus versus kids. Uh, you'll also see the a. You know, you'll see it listed as ALL. That's usually talking about lymphocytic or lymphoblastic, and you'll see AML, and that's referring to myelogenous. And those things are referring to the different stages of development of the stem of the stem cell. Um, and here's, the, and you can see here the, dif- the differences between the acute and the and the uh, the chronic. With adults, it does go, go along uh, slowly. Um, a friend of mine, his wife has chronic CML. Uh, she's had it for the last 15 years. You know, it seems to be managing it um, very well. Um, notice some of the similarities in the in the side effects. just to show you some of the differences with, with kids. You're talking about 2,000 kids a year uh, with adults. AML AML is more common, 10,000 cases, CL, CLL is uh, 7,000 cases. Interesting thing about ALL, I always found fascinating, and I think this, this shows that there's some kind of genetic link to our susceptibility to cancer, and that is kids with Down syndrome <coughs> have 15 times greater incidence of ALL. Working on an oncology unit, Uh, we haven't seen we didn't see them this year down where we are in Delaware, but at at Children's Hospital we often would see you know far greater than you would expect to see of kids with Down syndrome on an on an oncology unit, and the whole reason is is this, and uh, so it seems to be that there's something about the 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 genetic alteration that causes Down syndrome that also seems to lead to some (laughs) susceptibility. And so that seems to be the re, you know when we say well why did one kid get it over another, uh, it seems to be that there must be some kind of genetic the kids that are getting it having have must have some kind of genetic susceptibility and then some trigger is is causing it. In adults, it seems to be associated with this exposure to radiation or benzene chemicals like benzene in the environment. In um, Chernobyl, is everybody familiar with the uh, you know Chernobyl? What was that? What was Chernobyl? A nuclear, Gretchen? A nuclear explosion in the Soviet Union. Right. It was, a, it was a meltdown in the Soviet Union and the Ukraine uh, in, gosh, when was it? It was in the 80s, mid-80s. And uh, a lot of uh, Soviet soldiers died of leukemia because part of the, the, the only way they could contain it was they were actually dropping soldiers in on helicopters, shoveling dirt on the, on the meltdown. And then going back out, they were only there for a few minutes, but they got such high doses of radiation that almost to a man, they died of ended up dying of uh, leukemia later. Um, and most of the treatment for leukemia is with chemotherapy. Radiation is less common. Um, you can see for for adults, uh, survival rates are. Not as good as, as kids. Uh, adults uh, very often, um, only, only about half after five years will still be alive, where with kids after five years, almost all of them are. This all depends on age and their relative health when they are diagnosed. So kids that are diagnosed at two and three years old have a higher survivability than kids that are diagnosed with ALL later in life. And it seems to almost go right along with, as with adults, too. The older you are, the less likely you are to survive later. Um, just talking about some of the nursing care of folks when they're diagnosed. Um, one of the things to keep in mind when kids are, kids are told about cancer, a lot of times adults will project their own fears about cancer into, into their children. A lot of adults are very afraid of cancer. And one of the things that often happens is I would be told by parents, they'd say, don't tell the child they have cancer. It'll just devastate them. Uh, he'll, they'll they'll, they'll want to they'll kill themselves. They'll want to jump out the window. And to a person, to a kid, I've never found that to be true. And do you know why? Because, yeah. Well, the preconceived ideas, but, yeah. Yeah. Right, they don't have any of the they haven't really projected all of those other fears of pain and early death and those kinds of things to their mind kids don't fear pain or death like adults do it's 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 a much more abstract concept to them so the potential of dying is is very abstract so um, one of the things when we have have parents um, talk about Ask you that, what do you think a response would be? If somebody says, Don't tell my child that he has cancer, how would you respond? Okay. Okay. Well, kids don't necessarily have a right to know because the um, caregivers do have the right to decide what children. Children here. I agree with you, in that I do think they have the right, but legally, they actually don't. And what was the second part of your? They would, yeah, yeah. And that's a good point. In that the kids are going to wonder why. Am, why am we go doing this? Why are we going through all these procedures, and things? Any other responses? Any other ideas you might have? You Jean? have try exploring the parents children. good good idea explore their fears why what you know instead of just saying yes or no uh ask them well what are you you know is there is there do you have a concern about uh them finding out is what's your what is your concern that would, would happen if they if they found that out and usually the response is is that they feel that the child would lose hope and okay so they say that and then how would you respond well i feel they would lose all hope if they knew they had cancer How would you respond then, Katie? Okay, so you're citing statistics, right? No, no reason to lose hope unless you give a reason. That's that's good. Okay. Oh, a point out that that parents often reflect the the feelings of their parents so if the if the parents are right if, the parents maintain hope and have, have right. if if they're very anxious and and very de- or or depressed, then that could be that could reflect on the child. Any other thoughts? yeah you know i think those are all good the one thing i would caution about is statistic quoting to say well statistics say your child will do uh, well and uh, do you know why we don't want to quote statistics right they can yeah there's no guarantees and statistics really don't mean anything Uh, and i may have talked about this before but i remember one father told me he said don't Somebody was. One of the doctors was using all kinds of t- statistics about how good his chances were. He said, "As far as I'm concerned, the odds are 50/50. Either my child gets better or he doesn't. I've already not had good odds. In fact, because what is it? You know, you're talking about only a you know le- about 10,000 kids a year out of 15 million are diagnosed with cancer anyway. So don't talk to me about odds. My uh, we've already not done well in the odds game." So they don't really, so don't, don't look it to that as a comfort. Um, so um, the other thing is to talk, I think some of those, you know, the ideas about reflection and, and uh, ref, you know, how children will reflect their, their parents' ideas are, are good. And also, um, as it was pointed out, um, Katie said, you know, they're going to wonder why. And one of the funny things I always found was that we had this one parent who went through all kinds of conniptions about how they were never to hear the word cancer. And then after about three days, we found out that the kid already knew anyway from the first day because he turned right to the kid in the next bed and said, what are you here for? He said, well, I'm here with cancer. Oh, okay, I guess that's what you have to <laughs> And then they went back to watching their cartoons. So it really often is, is not, the kids don't project that when they are told uh almost invariably they go okay what they really want to know is is am i going to feel pain at what's going and what's going to happen to me and that's really what you have to focus on is not so much the disease but oh drop it again why don't you um <laughs> not so much the disease but what am i going to feel what am i going to what am i going to go through what's going to happen to me what about my friends what about school those kinds. those kinds of things with adolescents, they have a much more adult understanding of death, um, even, though a lot of adult, even though adolescents often think of themselves as in, uh, invulnerable to things. They are, and they're often very concerned about alterations in appearance, when, when they can take everything in stride about all the procedures and bone marrow aspirations and radiation and chemo, but then when they find out they're going to be bald, then that, that makes an impression. Uh, and also the fact that you're not going to be hanging out with your ki- friends and doing your regular activities is a concern too. Um, parents, um, you know, they get physically stressed by this. You know, you're going back and forth to the hospital. You're often, uh, you know, just just racked with, with fears, uh, and and uh, you know you you feel so helpless when something happens to your child and there's nothing you can you can do about it uh and so one of the things we emphasize is for parents to try to take care of themselves find whatever supports available try to make sure that you're you're going off and on to get rest you know you don't get rest in a hospital it's the last place you get any rest and so to try to if if you've got another support person who you can tag team with you know alternate uh times to spend overnight with the with the, with the child, that's important. Um, remember that it's a grief reaction. When, when somebody's heard uh, that this, this has happened, remember, all time, whenever you hear about grief, the key word is loss. Whenever, whenever somebody's experiencing grief, you have to think about what have they lost. And what you've lost when your child is diagnosed with cancer is the expectation of a normal, uneventful life Span, which is what we hope and, and pray for our kids uh, there 's a loss of normalcy, the loss of just being able to do the things that we 've been doing that has all changed. You sometimes have to develop a whole new idea of, of normal. all the expectations you had for your for your child may be, may be lost, and so it 's this anticipatory uh, losses that that are really part of the grief reaction, and so just like when somebody dies they have to go through stages in order to assimilate this grief and and, and go on to a new part of their their way of living same thing for um, for a, a parent who's been diagnosed or has a child diagnosed with cancer these this is an example of all the some of the emotional responses that that people will feel and you can see that you know any any time you're you're hit with a with a devastating diagnosis and these things also go for um adults too that are that are diagnosed um with cancer too you're going to people are going to have all of these responses and so as a nurse too keep in mind that Early in diagnosis is when there's so much teaching involved, and because of the way our healthcare system is set up, you only have sometimes limited time when you can do teaching with them. And when do we ask, you know, when are nurses asked to do all this teaching? At a time when people are going through very heavy emotional periods. All kinds of of things that they're going to be going through. And these, these reactions can occur one after the other. You know, the first the first time you're just hit, it's kind of a shock, and then sadness might f- uh, go in. Uh, sometimes guilt happens because you know, with adults who maybe if they've had lung cancer or something like that, they feel, gosh, you know, everybody's been telling me forever to stop smoking, and I just ignored it, and now now it's you know, the chickens have come home to roost. Um, with ad- with kids, sometimes it's because parents didn't. Listen to their kid's symptoms for a while, and now they feel guilty because I waited three days before I took them to the doctor. Um, sometimes there's anger, um, anger for the just just at the world for the diagnosis, anger at God for 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 this um, happening to us, um, anger if they blame if they're blaming it on the environment or something like that. There's 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 anger there, um, but you also see hope. You know, sometimes people. Um, who can, but one thing I found as a nurse is the people who adjust more to change better, the people who, who realize that life is not guaranteed, that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and that we have to take each day as it comes, seem to adjust better, seem to actually have more hope. And, and seem to cope better. Those who think that their whole life is already planned for them, I'm going to get married at this, such and such a date and I'm going to have 2.4 children and they're going to grow up and get their degrees from Harvard and, and, they, and they're already thinking 40 years out. Those are the people who seem to have a harder, harder time, time with it. Um, one quote I saw from uh, about hope, and this is as things diminish sometimes, your hopes will change. And that's one of the things you have to adjust, adjust to, the fact that, that um, sometimes, whatever your hopes were before for your kids, your hope may be just to have a pain free day, maybe just to just to get through this day and do something fun that may be your hope compared to what your hope was last week. So these are some of the nursing diagnoses to be to be thinking about. Um, obviously a lot of fears what 's the What do we do for fear what's the what's the antidote to fear education Education, knowledge you know what fear fear is based on the unknown it's okay to be anxious it's okay to have anxiety because you know what's happening fear though is usually based on on not knowing and so the idea is is that people have the facts they'll still be anxious it's still not going to make it easy but they'll be able to cope better because at least they all understand what the purpose of the procedures are, what the purpose of the tr- of the treatments are, um, what you know what options are available to them. Keep in mind that families uh, are altered, and this isn't just for kids; this is for adults too. Um, your whole life is disrupted. You're now the person who's diagnosed with this. It becomes the center of attention. Uh, people have to to leave work change jobs, maybe uh, spend their time caring for uh, a person, you spend a lot of time driving back and forth to clinics for treatments, then you spend time trying to manage the side effects of those treatments, your life is is changed. And obviously there's a whole lot to, to learn about at that time. Um, with one thing to remember, because of the fear, because of the things that happen early in diagnosis, don't be surprised that you have to repeat explanations. That after you've, even though you've explained the side effects of a chemotherapy or what the, what's going to happen tomorrow, you find out five hours later they don't remember what you just told them. And one of the reasons is is because of the fear. Uh, one parent told me that when she was in the room with the physician and he, and he said, your child has cancer, she said everything that was said after that, all she heard was just static. She said she heard nothing else. So she nodded and they talked and they talked and they talked and she nodded and she nodded. But all she heard was the word cancer and everything else was forgotten. And so we had to repeat it, and then and, you know, it took, it took a, over a course of several days of repeated teaching before she finally got all of the pieces of the, of the puzzle, puzzle together. Uh, it's important to tell people what they're going to experience, not just remember not talk about odds and things like that, but talk about what's going to happen to them, Katie. Ah. Was was okay Katie's illustration if you didn't hear it, she said that both her parents had different stories at her brother's diagnosis about what they heard that's not unusual um and your question is, is if to have like a third party in there, right? Yeah, that's not a bad idea if you can arrange that. The other thing is just to keep in mind that because of that, you as a nurse, if you're working in these kind of settings, should also be with your patients. I know a lot of us are very afraid of it because it's very uncomfortable. You don't. We, a lot of times we don't want to be around that, but I think it's very, very important that a registered, you know, one of the nurses who's going to be caring for that patient or that child be there when they're told because of this. Because you want to hear what they've heard. And sometimes you have to act as a bit of an interpreter. Sometimes the oncologists will use terms they don't fully explain. People are just nodding. And as you said, your parents are getting different interpretations of what was said. And so that's if you're there and you hear the, you hear the real story, you're not caught up in the emotion of it because it's not affecting you personally. And so you might be able to then figure out between the two stories what was what was right. Because if people come people, both, two people come out and they both have a different story, how do you know which is the right one? Um, again, people will lose control. Whenever we have your, a, a devastating diagnosis is given to somebody, so much control in their life. We we work a lot on trying to keep things under, con, under control or believe we have control. When a diagnosis like this comes, it's a real stamp to say you don't have any control so what we want to do is to see where can we give control you know and sometimes it's small things like what side is the iv going to go in um, what you know if there's differences in in timing that can be that can be arranged uh, those kinds of things Wherever you can find control look look for it Um, with also if you're going through any kind of painful procedures Using, using distraction. With kids, we also try to get into therapeutic play. One of the things you find is that a lot of kids, they go through these things very, very well. Kids, kids emotionally, psychologically handle diagnoses very, very well, um, but they also will sometimes not be able to express those things to you. And so one important thing is to give kids a chance to play through some of their fears using dolls and things like that. If you're working in a hospital, a lot of them, they have child life A lot of them are very good at helping you uh, arrange those kinds of little puppet shows or dolls or, you know, using stuffed animals and things like that to let kids through. Another thing is just letting kids draw. You know, I had had one where I, I had a kid and he was been undergoing all kinds of treatments for the longest time. And I said, draw a picture of yourself in the hospital. And he drew a picture of himself in bed with needles and arrows and rockets and all kinds of laser beams coming at him while he's in bed. Hmm, I wonder how he feels about this situation. It's really, it was pretty obvious that he was really felt like he was being attacked while he was in, in the hospital. Um, look at people's support, you know, for, for altered family processes. Find out what kind of support people have. Not everybody's gonna have big happy families that are available, that are supportive. Sometimes people have just moved from an area, they may, not have any, they may not know anybody in the area. Sometimes people may be very estranged from the rest of their family, don't have a lot and don't have a lot of support. Uh, so we have to find out whatever kind of support they have. If it's a friend, even if it's, if it's not a family, is there a friend, somebody you can, you can um, lean on? Um, trying to keep your life as normal as possible is important. Um, and again, just taking every day as it comes, not getting unrealistic uh, expectations. That every, always Never talk about everything's going to be fine. That's like one thing you never say to anybody. Is, I don't care in whatever situation you are as a nurse. Be very careful about saying everything's going to be fine because we never know if it is. Talked about giving control. Also, keep in mind we're part of a team. You've got to find other counselors. There's going to be social workers, psychologists. People may, some, some people may request clergy. Whatever they want, we sh- should help find for them. And for kids, going back to school can be a big issue. Some kids are going to, because of the way the treatment protocols, they're not going to be able to go back to school, regular school, for a while. And so they'll be in a homeschooling situation, so they have to, you have to work with the schools for that. If the kids are going back to school, you want to make sure that the school nurse knows so that they know to, you know what kind of activities they can or cannot do. Um, if they're uh, neutropenic, what kinds of activities do they you know, how neutropenic can they be before they need to stay home? Uh, are there activities that they need to be excused from? Uh, you know, one thing research has often shown is that often siblings are ignored in the situation. Um, they're, they're not... Sometimes uh, when a lot of studies have, have looked at the brothers and sisters of kids with cancer, and they say they pretty much feel like they're abandoned because all the focus in the family goes on the child with the, with the cancer, and nobody's telling them what's going on. They're expected, even if they're young, sometimes they're expected to kind of step up and do more uh, to help in the, in the family than they were uh, just a week before. Um, and it's important not to forget them. A lot of times as nurses, we focus on parents, we focus on the child who's diagnosed, and we forget the brothers and sisters, so don't, don't forget them. Um, and remember we don't have answers we can't say why this occurred we can't tell anybody what will happen most what we our our main role is to let people talk about what their fears and concerns are and not to suppress those fears and concerns Um, talk to you about teaching over and over again Um, part of that teaching is also preparing people for side effects we talked about some of the physical effects I don't know if I mentioned this but a lot of this because steroids the prednisone that's given in high quantities as a part of a lot of chemotherapies also can cause a lot of mood changes and appearance changes and so we need to be prepared for that um, and, then, and whatever kind of complications that can occur, the fact that you're going to be at great risk for infections and things like that, the time to start talking about that is before that risk occurs so we can start talking about what kind of preventive activities you can do It's a lot of adjustment both physically you know if you've got a central line put in you're gonna have to learn how to take your uh, bath differently (laughs) you're gonna have to um, be be careful with kids they might have to play differently be careful where they can go what they can do Um, your your social routines uh, are obviously going to change because you're not going to be able to maybe do some of the activities you do before you're gonna have to develop new routines Uh, In cancer, there's two reasons why people come into the hospital. One is just for their regularly scheduled treatments of chemotherapy, radiation, a lot of these things are done on an outpatient basis. They don't even need to stay overnight. Some of the protocols because they require uh, high degrees of hydration, some of them because the side effects are so great, some of them because there's a whole sequence of drugs that have to be given one after the other for for more than twenty four hours, they can't be done on an outpatient basis and you have to be you have to be admitted inpatient for the for the care. That's one reason. The other reason that people get in the hospital with cancer is because of the complications Um, because of their um risks for infection they often come in with um they'll list it as fnn fever and neutropenia and uh so what they do for them is load them up on antibiotics um hope hope that there's enough immune system there to get through that and and get them get them home Um, there's all kinds of other complications that can occur. Relapses, of course, can occur, and that means then you need to go on, you know, begin a new um, cancer, cancer treatment. But infections are the number one cause. The management of infections, the new antibiotics and things have, have helped reduce the mor- mortality rate. But also, as more and more MRSA comes around, more and more resistant bacteria come around, it has made it much more difficult now to um, keep people from having those uh, infection complications. There's a list of all of the the complications uh, that can occur, just run run through them. Infection protection is our our number one concern. Given chemotherapy, we have to prevent those complications. We're gonna talk about the dangers of, of chemotherapy. Uh, and also because people are thrombocytopenic, they, it means you what? What's thrombocytopenia? Low platelets, right? Make sure you know those term, those, those kinds of terms. No neutropenia, no thrombocytopenia. Okay, anemia. No, know what those what those mean in in relation to cancer and cancer treatment. Um, bleeding protection because people are going to are, are more at risk for for bleeding so we have to just think of somebody somebody who doesn't able to is isn't able to clot very well think about the kinds of behaviors that may have to change pain is a big concern um, cancer itself can be very painful depending on where the cancer is some some cancers in of the, uh, themselves don't have a lot of pain. Others can be very painful. A lot of the bone cancers, extremely painful. Uh, a lot of people with bone cancers, um, uh, it's one of your biggest roles will be trying to manage, manage the pain. Others, most of the pains that are involved are actually more side effects of the treatment and the chemotherapies than the cancer itself. Um, sometimes if cancers develop so far that they're really unresponsive to treatment, uh, sometimes, because of tumors blocking pressing on nerves and things they 'll do surgeries to cut the nerves uh, it 's a palliative surgery it's not really it 's not really treating the cancer uh, you 've had classes on pain control and just understand as long as you 're giving the right drug and the right dose, addiction is not a concern in oncology units we give morphine left and right it's um, uh, you know, One of the oncologists told me, he said, well, really don't, I really don't worry about overdose um, because we have Narcan. If we really ended up overdosing somebody for some reason, I'll just give them Narcan. That's not something you'd want anybody to ever go through, but he would rather them be well medicated. Um, also be aware that the opioids after time can cause nausea, can, can, can cause agitation, and sometimes they have some unpleasant side effects of their, of their own. Um, because of nausea and vomiting, people will lose uh, can lose a lot of fluids with, uh, if they're if they're doing a lot of vomiting. Fortunately, uh, as I said, a lot of the the antiemetics now we have, have greatly improved the the side effects. We don't see as many kids throwing up. For those of you who were with me in at uh, on the oncology unit and had kids with getting chemo, how many how many times did you see anybody throw up? Did you ever have anybody throw up? Not once. You know, you did? It was You did, okay. All of a he said he was gonna throw up and I just turned around and he just threw up. He said he was gonna throw up and then went seconds went right two now. seconds later threw up. But it's much rarer occurrence. It used to be like you'd walk down the hall of a of an oncology unit and you just hear bleh, 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 you know in every room practically, and you don't really hear that uh any anymore. We do, it is a good idea not to eat a big full meal before the chemotherapy starts. You know, I used to have kids that would go to Burger King and stuff just beforehand because they wanted to have this like, last meal before they got the chemo, and that was always the worst. When that, that first one that comes back was always the worst. Also keep in mind your patients when they're on chemotherapies and things are going to be very sensitive to odors, so be very careful about uh, deodorants that you use, perfumes, colognes that you might wear. Also be aware that even certain foods can smell uh, is, if they have a strong smell can be nauseating to your patients. Uh, we generally encourage them to eat um, frequent small meals and small amounts of fluid so it's frequent and small is the key term there. Um, a, lot of, a lot of times, remember I we was talking about how fast growing cells are affected. And we talked about hair, we talked about I think, other, other parts of the body that are affected. One I didn't mention was mucous membranes. You're, you get a lot of, uh, very often, mouth ulcers are, are common. And so, very good mouth care is important, it's a real route for infection. Uh, and because, and it also is a is a place where a lot of pain can occur. Can ima- imagine the mucous membranes in your mouth getting ulcerated, and then if, even if you wanted to eat, it would be very, very hard. And so we try to make sure that we are looking for signs of ulcerations, rectal ulcerations, as well as as oral ulcerations. Um, good hygiene. You shouldn't be using when, you're, when your platelets are real low. You don't want to be using a regular toothbrush. We have little foam toothbrushes. Have you seen those? Little sticks with a little piece of foam on it. They call them toothettes sometimes. And put a little bit of toothpaste on that and and brush your teeth regularly with that. It seems to be a good idea. Um, mouthwashes, you've got to be real careful about because a lot of them are real high in alcohol and they'll burn. So you don't want to do that. Uh, sometimes people were recommending using hydrogen peroxide. That also hasn't been found to be real helpful. Um, milk of magnesia was also tried for a while. Thought, thought that that would like coat the mouth, but that doesn't seem to be a good, a good idea either. Uh, as I said, small frequent m- meals is important. A lot of times people do well if you can get just like a PO, uh, little can of Ensure, little can of Boost. Sometimes that's all they can really handle helps keep some of the protein levels up. When if, if people are going through really extensive chemotherapies and they're not able to eat at all, they will add TPN, total parenteral nutrition, or hyperalimentation, and uh, that goes a long way to keeping people's nutritional status up uh, through it, through the experience. Uh, people's skin is very, very fragile. They're very, very prone to um, ulcerations. So you really want to be inspecting their skin frequently. You want to be turning them frequently, what, looking at those pressure points in, in particular uh, because uh, they, they, they can very easily have breakdown. And a lot of kids is, or patients, it's a good, you might end up having to get special, special beds. Um, remember our, 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 our friend... Um, you took care of Jonathan, A few, several others. Uh, he was on like an air, an electric bed that had an air-controlled mattress under it that varied the, the pressures continuously um, while he was on that. Um, and also, the other part of skin integrity is preventing any kind of uh, damage to the blood vessels during chemotherapy administration. So uh, we use uh, central venous lines as much as possible, Um, be very very cautious about any kind of peripheral IVs if you're using if you've got a peripheral IV make sure what's going through that is not going to be caustic if there was any kind of infiltration and just keeping our skin clean but you got to be careful about not using too much soap and things like that because that can end up breaking down the skin Body image. You know, we talked a lot about. Uh, I, I mentioned before last last week about how alopecia becomes such a big deal uh, for people, and so it's a good idea to talk about what are you going to do when your hair is lost. Uh, one of the reporters on ABC, she's going through breast cancer treatment right now, and she went. She was using a wig for a while, and I noticed just this morning, she's she just has a very short, close cropped hair. Her hair has started to to grow back. Interestingly a lot of times when the hair grows back it'll have a different texture it tends to be coarser sometimes it even changes color when it grows back um, you need to be careful about exposure to the Sun a lot of the a lot of the chemos will uh, and because of the damage to the skin will make you much more photosensitive than you were before the skin the skin can burn much more easily uh, a lot of the steroids can cause your face to kind of balloon up and get round change your appearance. Um, It's important that people, you know, when they that they do try to maintain normality, one of the things we talk about is get up, try to do your daily routines, wear clothes, don't just spend the day in in pajamas. It seems to really just help psychologically if you if you live as normally as possible. Um, fatigue, you know, gotta be ready. People undergoing chemotherapy, radiation get fatigued very easily. Uh, look you're looking like you're fatigued so I'm going to give you a break right after this slide um, making sure that people give themselves rest periods don't think that you can have the stamina that you had before a lot of times people that are very energetic very get, go, get going are really one of the things that really ha- is hard on them is the fact that they can't do everything that they used to do and um, they have to learn how to pace themselves um, you know I remember um, Mary went through this uh, last last year. she thought she could come and do everything and found that just going from the parking lot to here to the to the building was much more strenuous on her than she anticipated and so we had a had a she had to really think much more carefully about what activities she did where she went where how far she walked those those kinds of things uh, and of course, keeping up your nutrition um, getting other people to help you, that kind of stuff. A lot of times we're very afraid to ask for help. I know personally I'm one who's always afraid to ask somebody. I never, never feel I want to ask anybody. I always want to do it all myself. Uh, and, and you have to learn how to let others help you. And whatever it is that you can do to help improve your, your mobility. So let's take a break now, come back uh, about two minutes after 11, and we'll get started again.